1: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So owing money, we know it's incredibly stressful. Um, a piece of that stress or a source of that stress can be due to just not knowing what one's rights are when it yeah. comes to owing that money. Because I mean, you know this. In some cases, this needs to be looked at right away or you mm-hmm. need to pay this back as soon as possible. In other cases, you know, there's a negotiation involved. So let's talk yeah. about that. What actually happens if a debt goes unpaid? That's the se- that's the focus of this segment.
2: Yeah, so I think we want to give people some tools, some frameworks, some information here about, you know, if a collection agent is calling you, that's probably, the, you know, the least, <laughs> you know, least good you're going you're gonna to feel. When someone's on the phone with you, accosting you, saying you're a bad person, you're not paying this debt. I had someone tell me today just the tone of voice the collector took with them instantly. Their heart started to race. They're, they started to sweat a little bit. So when you're starting to get a bunch of collection calls, it can be a very emotional, a very difficult type of situation. And the whole thing a collector is going to try to do is assert their rights and not make you aware of your rights. So for today's segment, let's talk about, you know, what can you do if a collector calls? What can they reasonably do? What can they not reasonably do, and what are your options there?
1: Okay, what 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 are my options? That just scares the heck out of me, knowing that somebody's going to call, and 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 these people are probably really good at making this phone call, right? Yeah, intimidation, shame, guilt, uh, threatening, <laughs> you yeah. name it, right?
2: Well, what even gets me too is you know even the government has started to outsource some of their debts to collection agents. Oof. So things like student loans, if you go delinquent, you might get a call from ARO Collections or CBB. These are private companies. And again, what well, my clients tell me of the things they'll say over the phone, I'm like, my God, the government is backing these guys. It's it's scary stuff. But let's talk about you know why would you be getting a collection sure. call? Sure. So, why
1: is that? Because that means you've been in that means you've been ignoring a few things for a while at yeah, this point too, right?
2: A collector is never going to be their first step to recover the debt. So you know if I owe the bank a little bit of money, I've been a customer of the bank for a long time. They're going to want to preserve that customer relationship, but not forever. So generally, what happens is if you miss one payment on your credit cards or bills or whatever. They'll be fine. You might get a little notation on the next statement that says, Oh, we didn't receive your payment. You know, maybe it crossed us in the mail. Please catch it up this month. After three months, that's going to be when the niceness stops.
1: Okay. And three months. Yeah. That's what you've got. So,
2: three months of missed payments. What essentially is going to happen then is the bank's going to start to give up on the customer relationship. They're going to say, You know what? We've tried being nice about this. We wanted to keep you as a customer, but now we'd rather just get the money. We're going to give up on treating you nice, but we don't want to do that ourselves. We want to put on, you know, a different face and give that to a collector who's essentially, um, you know, going to try to put some pressure on you to get paid. Now, the challenge that I have here is if you could have paid the debt, you would have paid the bank, right? No one would have automatically just let a good debt go to collections just for the fun of it. So quite often if someone's uh, receiving collection calls, they're not in a position to actually make good on this debt anyway. And all the collection calls are doing is adding more stress to their day.
1: Okay, so they've called me. Yeah. Um,
2: Where do you start, right?
1: Yeah, where do I start and what are my rights at this point?
2: Yeah. So, so one place to start is right off the top. You have the right to demand proof of the debt. You have the right to demand proof of anybody that's calling you provide me some written proof that I actually owe this debt. Because sometimes what happens is that a debt might be very old that it's not even legally valid anymore, but the collector's not going to tell you that. If you ask for written proof, they would show you a statement from 10 years ago. And then you would understand, well, if I've done nothing for 10 years, well, you know, why are you collecting now? You know, go away. But if you don't demand written proof, you know, you're just accepting that, okay, this is something that I automatically owe. Now, even if you know you owe this money, I would still say to the collector, I'd like to demand written proof. I want to know for sure who you are acting on behalf of. Just by doing that, you will separate yourself from other folks who are again very quick to just, you know, take the authority as 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 spoken rather than question it a little bit.
1: Okay, fair enough. Uh, what about mail only communication? That's interesting. I can't I, I hadn't yeah. thought about that.
2: Oh, Elaine, the number of people and often senior citizens, that I can make their day completely by saying you don't need to pay me a thing. You don't need a bankruptcy. What you need to do is you need to understand that the the province of BC protects you from these calls. All you need to do is invoke that protection. So province of BC says a collector can call you from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, and they can call you on Sunday for about a six-hour period. So literally seven days a week they can be on your mind. What the province of BC also puts out, but doesn't publicize well at all, is that you can send a notation, a one-page letter to any collector that calls you that says, pursuant to the Consumer Protection Act, I do not consent to phone calls. Hmm. As simple as that.
1: And they have to adhere to that? They
2: have to adhere to that. It's it's right in the law. You would make a co- complaint against them to Consumer Protection BC if they didn't.
1: Okay and then they would then take some action to stop them right?
2: That's right. From they, doing that. Yeah they would put fines them, they might remove their license. It's a very serious thing um, because again if you could pay the debt you would. have. Is there anything to be gained by you getting into emotional discussions every no. day with someone whose interests are completely at odds with yours? No you're not gonna feel good after that.
1: Yeah and I don't even owe them the money. It's, uh, you know, another organization that they're representing. So yeah, they can be as mean as they want.
2: Oh yeah. So definitely you want to send this letter off and you'd want to remain proof or retain proof that you sent the letter. So, you know, a fax confirmation sheet or registered mail and you, you have a little, you know, pad beside the phone. The next time they call, I sent you a legal letter. It was received on this day. Did you not receive it? Okay, I will send you a second copy, but I am notifying this or I am noting this as I go along. You won't have to have too many of those conversations. And the real impact here is what the collection agent will put down on paper is night and day different to what they will say verbally because they figure most people don't record their calls. So again, if you really want a collection agent to dance smartly, start the conversation off by saying, by the way, I am recording this call.
1: Excellent. Even, well,
2: if, even if you're not, even it if doesn't you're not. matter. And the law in Canada says, as long as one person is aware, which can even be just you, you're fine to record a call. Exactly. So I encourage people to, again, assert a little bit of power, put the dynamic back on more equal footing.
1: Excellent. Now, I'm sort of surprised at this, and I know you've got a great explanation, changing your bank account. Now, mm-hmm. what's the advantage of doing that?
2: Yeah. So we're all, you know, very much conditioned in advertising to say, put everything under one umbrella. You know, if you've been a bank customer your whole life, you should have your daily checking there and your mortgage there and your credit card there and so on and so forth.
1: And they want you to do that.
2: Absolutely. They want you to do that. That's where they make them a lot of money having all of your needs together. But also what happens is that gives the bank free access to any of your assets that are held at the bank. If you have a credit card with Royal Bank and you have an account with Royal Bank and you default on that credit card, they can go into your account and clean it out and take the payment. Got it. If you have a credit card with Royal Bank, but you bank with CIBC, they can't touch a dollar of your money unless they hired a lawyer, spent months getting you served, going to court, spending thousands of dollars. I'm not advocating anybody not paying their debts if they're not able to, but if you're talking about you got your rent due in a couple of days and you didn't make the credit card payment and suddenly the bank came into your account and took your rent money, that's a bad situation. Exactly. Then you've got two or
1: three big problems.
2: Exactly. Okay. So I'd suggest to folks, if you're banking where you owe money, just don't do that. You just spread your accounts out so that you have your assets, you know, your daily checking. If you have a TFSA or an RRSP or something, have that at one bank and have a credit card from somewhere else. I don't think you're seeing any benefit typically of wrapping it all up within one bank other than, you know, you get one statement or one package of statements, sure. but the risk that you take is far greater than that.
1: Oh, that's such good, that's such a good idea. Um, what is, when somebody phones me and threatens legal action, uh, what does that really mean?
2: In your world? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) It it means yeah, basically less than nothing. So there's a lot of research out there that if 10,000 people are threatened with legal actions by a collection agent, one in those 10,000 will actually be sued. Okay. So if a collector is threatening to sue you, I would suggest you say, okay, do what you need to do. I'll wait for the documents to arrive. Right. Okay. There was a lot of controversy years ago where collectors started to send out these draft court documents, draft statements of claims Oof. that looked official, but Oof. had nothing to do with officialdom. Um, that's illegal now. So okay. if you receive an actual court document, then you've got to deal with something. Pay attention. But typically it's going to be the bank that's going to sue you. It's not going to be the collection agency. It's going to cost them thousands of dollars. If they're connect- collecting on a two or $3,000 debt, they're not going to invest five or six to get you to court and if they actually got you to court if you decided to file a bankruptcy or a proposal literally the day of all that money is wasted they're no better off and they know that right and so if you're being threatened with legal action or you know you must return my call within 24 hours or else don't return that call and see what happens. Generally, nothing is the answer.
1: Right. And then you've got those other great uh, things that you can do. Request the mail-only communication, demand proof, all those kinds of things, and change that bank account. Mm -hmm. So uh, the fifth one, don't make partial or good faith payments.
2: Yeah. This one I love, and I think it will be a surprise to a bunch of our listeners here, because sometimes you think that a collection agent is actually working with you. When they say, you know what? I know you can't pay the full amount. Why don't you pay me 10 bucks this month or 20 bucks or 50 bucks or some fraction of what's owed and you think okay this is a reasonable person they want to work with me they want to help me along here what they're doing is they're making sure that they're going to be able to collect from you forever Mm. because the province of bc has a limitations act that says if you owe somebody money and you stop paying them they have to decide are they going to sue you or are they going to not sue you within two years of your last payment if two years go by and you haven't made a payment and they haven't sued you, if they take any action legally to recover this debt, they can spend however much money they want. You'd show up in court and you'd win in 10 seconds. You'd say, if they've got no proof that I have paid in the last two years, therefore this is, should be thrown out. It's pursuant to the limitations act. Got it. So they will never tell you this. And what they're doing by getting you with these partial good faith payments is you are resetting that limitations clock every month. So I that understand. two years will never kick in if you make partial payments every month.
1: So it's a good idea. Well, I mean, it's just such a good idea to know this before you embark on it. Now, of course, ultimately... if, if you're getting calls from a debt collector and you and there is a lot of debt out there, uh, the the best idea, you know, so you don't have to worry about all these other things we've talked about, is get a hold of a professional that's going to help you.
2: Yeah, come in and talk to us, talk to a licensed insolvency trustee. Um, again, I had people bring me collection notices every day of the week. I love to see what new and wonderful wording they're using there. Um, I have people tell me about the calls that they have. I have never had a client who was actually sued by a collection agent. And I've been trustee practicing for more than 10 years. I've had, you know, governments take action to seize wages. I've had banks, you know, take action to try to sue a client. And then, you know, we, we put it in protection that has to stop. But this idea that collection agents have all this power that we have to be afraid of them and dance to their tune. No, you can flip the dynamic. You, the consumer, have the power.
1: And when I go and see Sands & Associates, you're going to not only tell me that, you're going to put in things in place mm-hmm. that I can. Because if somebody's calling you, if a debt collection yeah. agency is calling you, that's probably a good sign that you need to get a little bit of help on how, how to figure this out and to get rid of it because it is stressful owing money yeah. for sure. I mean, there's a lot of emotion connected to it.
2: Oh, yeah, we might have a great meeting. At the end of the meeting, I say, here's the mail only notification letter that you need. It's on my website. If you go to sans trustee forward slash downloads, you'll see it there. But a lot of my meetings are here are the tools that you need to put the power back in your shoes. And if that's enough to solve the problem, great. If it's not enough that you, know, you really do have a debt problem, well, we're going to fix the whole thing.
1: If any of this information resonates with you, uh, the very best place to start is give Blair a call, give Sands & Associates a call. He's got a huge staff in all the different locations uh, that can give you more information. It's a free consultation. Your first one is absolutely free and your second and third one might be as well, depending on what it is you're going to take or what action you're going to take. Nice and easy, the phone number 1-800-661-3030 to get that free consultation and to find an office near you. Kind of a part two. We've already had a bit of a discussion about uh, quick and easy financial tips to help you to that. And I don't think it's unrealistic, but to a a playing field where you're comfortable and you're meeting your expenses and you're meeting your debts and you're having a good life. I, th- I don't think that I don't think that's unrealistic to to sort of help folks get to that place.
2: I think that's a reasonable goal, and the whole idea of the quicksands series of tips here is just to guide you to better financial management. So better for someone who's always doing great might be just a little tweak around the edges. Better for somebody who's in a very dire financial situation could be well here's a plat- here's a path to become debt free. So it's just all to help you to improve wherever you are.
1: Now. I like this this segment's all about ways to help you feel like you're managing your money a little bit better than mm-hmm. possibly you are at this point so let's so let's uh, talk about that mm-hmm. the first place is are you going to the right place Bank, which I thought was a really good question to ask.
2: Yeah, so we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, there's so many options for a different bank account and so many complicated different packages at each institution, but not everyone's banking needs are exactly the same. And when I, when I ask people, you know, when's the last time you actually sat to take a look at your bank account and its regular fees? You know, most people say, well, I, I've never done that. You know, I. Know. I, I <laughs> Am and I looking I, at somebody? <laughs> you are. And
1: when yeah. I read this, in prepping for this, I thought, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know. Yeah. I, and. I've been there for a really long time and I have no idea.
2: Right. And a lot of people, they just get the, you know, the notice from the bank, hey, fees are changing this year. They don't say what's going up or down until you really read the fine print. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the times we're just on cruise control with our banking relationship. And you know the facts are the right bank account can actually make quite a bit of difference uh, in your day-to-day life to the point where there's, in my view, there's no reason for any Canadian to be paying monthly banking fees every month. There are so many free accounts that are out there, whether it's Simply Financial or Tangerine or different different options there. But if you're paying, you know, 15 or 20 or $30 a month for your banking services, really sit down and take a look at, okay, well, what am I getting for that that I would not be getting for a no-fee bank account? And you might find that all of your needs are actually being met by a no-fee bank account, but you're just paying because you like to have the prestige or being a signature customer or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, I can tell you, me personally, 15 to $20 a month in banking fees is absurd, but for some people, if they feel that they can get that value from it, well, okay. So at least consider, is your account meeting your needs? Take a look look. look at what are the payments that you're making or the fees that you're being charged each month. Uh, And even if you're happy with where you are, there's no downside from my point of view to sit down, have a meeting with somebody at the bank and just say, I'd like to understand what are my options for lowering my expenses. And generally, you're going to come out with at least something. And if nothing else, well, you're no worse off. They're not going to raise your fees because you suddenly um, decided to come in and ask for a discount. Exactly. Now, one thing I really encourage people to to be aware of, and this is not so much with banks sometimes, but uh, definitely with loan providers or credit granters, uh, is the idea of balance protection insurance, okay? I've been doing trustee work a long time. I've never had a single client who was actually able to collect on this type of insurance. Mm. So this is the insurance, you know, if you were to lose your job, it'll make your payments, so on and so forth. It can be very expensive. Sometimes, you know, $50 a month in some cases, sometimes $20 a month, um, and you just pay it regardless every month of whether you, you actually need the insurance or not. So take a look. Have you been opted into some insurance programs that even if you need them, they probably wouldn't pay out? Um, and for the most point Uh, People don't even know that they're paying those costs each month.
1: Excellent. I like the idea that you've included the automatic savings uh, because it, it can be hard if you're physically having to take money and put it someplace mm-hmm. as opposed to having somebody else do it automatically.
2: Exactly. So the best way to make your savings a habit is, again, make it a priority to do it first uh, and to really set it up. With almost every bank, you could have a separate account and you could set up regular transfers that say the day that you're paid, you know what 10% of your income is going to be. Take that income and put it over to the savings account or put it directly into the RRO or into the TFSA, but paying it off the top and making it automatic, that's so important to do.
1: That's a really good idea. I like this part, this part that we're going to talk about next is it, it, money plays a huge part in our lives every day, all the time, but it also plays a role in the relationship mm-hmm. and or relationships, I should say, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship it is, uh, but money does sometimes or often figure. So I think this is a good one and I, I like the fact that you started with a winning partner partnership. Mm-hmm. It's really good good advice, good information, good reminder.
2: Yeah. So you need to keep in mind that you are in a partnership if you're sharing your life with somebody um, and finances are a piece of that. So if just one spouse is completely responsible for all the finances or has all the knowledge, that's not ideal. You're not working together on that. You've got one person shouldering all the responsibility and perhaps all the blame if things don't go right.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. So what you really want to do is get on the same page as your spouse or your partner. So sit down and whether it's on a monthly basis or a bi-monthly or something like that, but review all of your finances together. So look at the debts, that each of you have, the debts that are shared together. Uh, look at the income, look at the bills each month and just have full financial transparency. You know, if God forbid one should happen to one of the partners here, it's really important that the other person can still, you know, keep the bills paid and the lights on as they go through a very tough time. Um, what you'd want to do is also talk about your personal spending habits and with no judgment, but just understanding, you know, people grow up in different households, they bring different philosophies towards money and sometimes that can be a very compatible or incompatible method uh, of of you know, having conflict about um, how they actually spend their money, but knowing um, from a going in point of view that someone's more of a saver or more of a spender where someone could spend the 5 or $10 and not think about it, uh, it would keep the other partner up for, you know, days on end just thinking about that wasted money. That's really important for clients to communicate or customers to, or couples, pardon me, to try to communicate and try to work through together. Well,
1: that's good advice. I like the second one too. And can you explain it? It's called lead by example. So what are you telling us?
2: Yeah, so what I'm I'm saying here is, you know, again, not everybody grows up with the same type of financial literacy, but there are a couple of things that you can do if you've got kids at home that can kind of give them a little bit more of a leg up than the alternative might be. Uh, So one idea that we like is instead of giving kids a small weekly allowance, you know, a few dollars here or there that just goes in and out, uh, consider a monthly allowance, a monthly allowance that might feel more like a paycheck and that can teach them responsibility to budget their money. If it's all gone the next day, well then, gee, there's 28 days left in the month here, guys. So maybe we want to budget more next month. But again, giving trying to lead by example for your kids to give them more of the monthly allowance than the weekly allowance, that could be a really nice way to do that.
1: That's a good idea. What about asking for help? And, uh, and that's a hard thing for, for lots of folks to do.
2: Yeah. And with finances, you know, probably even more so almost than even health, you know, we're very, very um, ashamed often about the situations that get us into debt, even though sometimes it's outside of our complete control. But there's a number of financial professionals that you can reach out to. And it's not just trustees out there, but someone like a financial planner. So if you have no idea where to start from a long term point of view, you know, you want to retire eventually, you want your family to be financially secure in the long term. Well, that's what a financial planner is going to help you do help you to work out that savings and where it should go each month. Um, an accountant, if you're at all self-employed and you don't have an accountant, you need an accountant. You need someone to help you with your taxes, help you understand all the changeless CRA every year. It's generally, it's money well spent. Um, if you're not self-employed, um, you may not need an accountant, but you know just looking into how complex or simple your situation might be, an accountant might be someone you'd reach out to potentially for, for some questions on a yearly basis. Um, a lawyer, for example, could be another professional. Now, typically, this is going to be when you're having some major life events that have a financial impact. Maybe it's the start or end of a marriage. It could be wills and estate planning, accident or an injury, or even a real estate purchase. So, you'd need a lawyer at certain transactional times in your life. But most people don't have a lawyer on speed dial. They don't have someone that you know is is managing every aspect of their life. You know, a lawyer is typically a transactional type of thing you would need.
1: And when do when when is the best time to go see a licensed insolvency trustee? Like your yourself
2: probably sooner than you think. So the reason why we spend so much time on this show, Elaine, is that even today I met with somebody and two years ago was when they knew they're going to need their help. They're not going to be able to get through this. And, you know, they muddled along for about another two years and now they're in my office now. Uh, And that was just this morning. And we were saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had started this two years ago? You would have been finished a year ago. Uh, You would have been rebuilding your credit. And and that's right. They're saying, yeah, but I just wasn't, wasn't ready at that point. And that's totally fine. Everybody's on their own journey. But generally at the first step of when you know you're not, going to be able to pay off your debts, talk to a trustee. If nothing else, will give you good advice to help you move forward. And if you do need some help, starting it sooner rather than later is just better for everyone.
1: So if any of this is resonating with you and you find yourself in a situation that you're overwhelmed by your debts and know, first of all, that you're not alone and that you can take action, and that's where a licensed insolvency trustee would come in and contact uh, a local Sands & Associates representative in a BC office. They're all over the place. Uh, here's the 1-800 number. It's 661-3030- Or if you're feeling that's a bit too much to first big step, go to the website, sans trustee.com. There's just a ton of good information there for you, lots and lots of questions and answers. And book that as well. You can book your confidential free debt consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. On the line with us right now is Laura Tamlin Watts from the BC Law Institute. Uh, Laura Mann has an amazing resume. I'll just tell you a few things about her. Uh, She's a senior fellow and staff lawyer called to the BC Bar back in 1999, and she's presently at the Canadian Centre for Elder Law, the BC Law Institute. Uh, she has uh, was a, a lead on an, a really interesting study on elder abuse in Canada that was released in 2016, and she also currently teaches law and aging at the University of Toronto. And there's a lot of other things that you've done, Laura, but you know what, we just don't have the time to list them all. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So I know seniors... Uh, are the uh, group of people that you have literally dedicated your life to in so many aspects? Uh, we, all, of course, this show Dollars and Cents is all about the the money side, the debt side, the financial side. So let's first start there. What are the some of the main issues that you've come across in all of your study and work and talking and teaching uh, that impact seniors financially? The main things that that uh, seniors are up against these days.
0: That's a great question. I mean, I think some of the big pieces are looking at how joint accounts and powers of attorney can be used both for good and for bad purposes, Mm. looking at second and third marriages through the life course, and things like pensions and benefits. Those are really hot topics that we need to be thinking about as we age.
1: So let's talk about the good news and the bad news on your first one.
0: So powers of attorney are documents that you can make when you're a capable person that can help to choose somebody to be your decision maker when you become mentally incapable. So if you're on one side of the street and you're perfectly fine, you cross the road, you get hit by a car, you're in a coma, someone's going to have to make decisions for you, financial decisions or health care decisions. We know when it comes to dementia that that's not really how it goes, that it's more fluctuating on mental capacity. But powers of attorney are documents that let you take control and choose who you want to be your decision maker. And that sounds great. Sometimes it goes really, really well, and sometimes it goes wrong.
1: So is there a set of criteria, Laura, that people need to pay attention to before they make that decision or ask a specific person or a group of people to take on that powers of attorney?
0: Absolutely. It's important, first of all, that you have to ask somebody who's an adult. So I have kids, they're teenagers, they couldn't serve as an attorney. You have to be an adult. You have to be over the age of 18, first of all. Second of all, you can't be in any kind of conflict with somebody. And of course, you shouldn't pick somebody that you're in conflict with anyway. But for some people who may not have a lot of people in their life, that can be a challenge. You can pick one person or you can pick more than one person to be a decision maker. Now, there's pluses and minuses in that. If you choose one person, you're hoping that it's, you know, that they do what you want and you don't have anyone who's playing really a checker balance on that. If you pick two or more people, you have to decide, are they going to have to agree? Or can it just be whoever gets to make the decisions who can be contacted first most easily? So if you think about it this way, you know, it really depends on what your situation is. If you pick two people and you say that they have to agree, imagine you've got adult kids. and You say, you know, John and Barb both have to agree on all of the financial decisions for me if I become incapable well, first of all, it may be hard. One of them may be on vacation. One of them may have moved. Maybe they can't be reached. And while they're supposed to do what you would want them to do, maybe they both don't agree on what it is that they think that you would want them to do. And they can become deadlocked. Yeah. So it's important if you're going to have that, you have to have some kind of a tiebreaker. And one of the other pieces is to make sure, kind of like a will, that you've got a backup person. So whether you pick one or two people, it doesn't matter. Make sure you pick some alternatives. In the end, powers of attorney are really an important planning document. Most people don't realize that if you become incapable, there's no default list. It doesn't automatically go to your spouse or kids or siblings. If you haven't made a power of attorney or a court hasn't appointed somebody to be your decision maker, which is quite rare then all of the, the decisions go to the public guardian and trustee and they've got to find somebody. So it's a really important tool for people to make while they're still capable. But you have to think it through. Who are you going to choose? And how is it going to work, practically speaking?
2: So even if someone is not of that you know, senior citizen age level, it sounds like you know earlier on in life you may want to think about that as well.
0: It's important for anyone who's an adult of you right. As long as you're more than 18, really everybody should have thought through a power of attorney. As I say, if you are in an accident or you're traveling, you need to have somebody who's able to make a decision for you if you become incapable. But here's the bad part of it. When you hand over your power of attorney to somebody, when you hand over a document that lets them essentially sign your name, you're handing over the reins of your entire finances, usually to them. And that means the decisions that they make can literally bankrupt you. And what we know is elder financial abuse is one of the most common forms of elder abuse. We think about 5 to 8% of the population reports having had an elder financial abuse incident in the last one year. Wow. Except that we know that that number is much, much bigger because people don't want to report. As you can imagine, it's very difficult. And. When we were doing the surveys, we weren't able to talk to people in long term care or people who were themselves already incapable. So, if we say five to eight percent, you can make sure that you could double that number at least. Yeah, the powers of attorney are if say, great and important tools, but if you sign them and somebody takes advantage, it can literally financially destroy you.
1: Okay, so you have uh, been able to scare a ton of people who are hearing this, Laura. What is there criteria? I mean, do you have some some good advice for folks who haven't been able to uh, pick someone yet or think it through clearly? I mean, is there a checklist? How do, how do we go about this? There's some
0: great tools out there. Some of the tools that I really recommend are from an organization called the National Initiative for Care of the Elderly, NICE, mm-hmm. the NICE Network. And if you go to nicenet.ca, you'll see a whole bunch of great tools and particularly a bunch on powers of attorney and joint accounts as well. So those are some great tools people can go to for free. They can see those tools in both English and French and some other languages as well. But here are some of the practical pieces. Make sure that you've had a conversation with the person who you're going to appoint. Find out for them, first of all, do they feel comfortable making those decisions? People ask, who should I appoint? I say, look, find that detail-oriented person who's comfortable with bookkeeping or accounting. Because it's no great pleasure to be appointed an attorney for somebody. It's a job. Mm -hmm. And you can get a little bit of compensation for it. But, you know, it's something that most of us do out of the the goodness of our heart for our parents or family members and friends. But make sure you have a conversation and ask if they're willing. Number two, make sure that they're detail-oriented and they have some good understanding about kind of what their obligations are. They've got to keep separate accounting. They've got to keep separate bank accounts. Make sure that they know how to do that thing. It's not that hard. And financial institutions can help, but make sure that they know so they don't go into it kind of not understanding their role. And the most important thing, number three, make sure that you set time aside with that person and talk to them about what your values, wishes, and beliefs are. Make sure that you express to them where you would want your money spent and where you wouldn't, what's important to you and what isn't as important to you. If you arm yourself and arm them with those tools – and you pick somebody that you trust, you should be good to go. Having a power of attorney is a critically important part of anyone's plan for the future.
1: And and once you've done that too, the amount the the uh the decrease of stress should be pretty good, right? I mean, if I've if I've figured out who's going to make those decisions for me, um it's going to be easier on me in the long run.
0: Absolutely. It's easier on you, it's easier on everybody. When people have a good understanding about what's expected of them and know where accounts and documents are, it's a big relief to everybody. When it comes sometimes to talking about families and maybe someone doesn't want to pick one child over another child or they want to pick a friend and not their kids, having those conversations actually can be very, very helpful. Parents often feel like they need to point their kids to be equal in some way. And I always say to them, look, it's a, it's really a task you're asking. Make sure that you ask the person who is best suited to do it. If you don't want to ask anyone to do it, you can actually appoint a trust company to do it for you. And that, was, that can be a big relief off of people's minds as well. Yeah, that'll probably cost you. Yeah, it'll probably cost you about 5% to do it over the total assets, but it means that you're getting professionals making these decisions and it can be a big weight off if you don't feel like you have the right person in your life to choose or they don't, they don't want to have, you know, money and their friendships, their relationships tied up together. So it's a good option that some people can consider as well.
2: Uh, Laura, I was, I was intrigued when you, you mentioned a, a couple of things. You said power of attorneys. You also said joint accounts and you said, you know, there can be positive and negative. So in my role as a licensed insolvency trustee, I've seen some examples where, you know, someone has had a joint account and, you know, someone has cleaned it out or on the other side, someone has said, yeah, there's this joint account, but it's not my money. It's only the other person's money. Um, so I wonder what, what you've seen in terms of the good and bads of, of a joint account.
0: Exactly so. There's nothing wrong with a joint account like a tower of attorney. They can be very useful. I have joint accounts with my husband. But when you make an account joint, often it's being done between the senior and a senior and an adult child in order to avoid the idea of probate, which is when a will has to go through a court process after somebody has died. And there's a small fee on it. And it depends on which jurisdiction in the country you are. In BC, it's about 1.4% of total assets, but it can change a little bit depending on where you are. It's still a very minimal fee. But people are often given the advice, hey, if you make your adult son or daughter joint on all your assets, the house, the cabin, the property that you share in the family, your investment accounts, your bank accounts, then there's no real need to probate because you'll avoid going through this process because as long as somebody survives, it doesn't need to go into the will. Look, that, that that is true. But here's what people don't tend to realize. When you put somebody joint on any asset, whether it be cash or property, it means that they own it 100% as well. So if I have $100,000 and I put my adult son joint on that it means we each own the hundred thousand dollars and quite like you said they can take out the account empty the account and go on a, a luxury cruise somewhere and they haven't really done anything wrong now there are some accounts that we know that really the person is not supposed to be owning it they're supposed to be taking care of it as kind of a trust account but it, it can be hard to prove after the fact once the money is gone but here's the other thing people aren't really as aware of and it's important it means it also is an asset that creditors mm-hmm. or a family law claim can come after. So if mom decides to put this adult son on the family cottage because she's doing some planning and doesn't want it to go through the estate and probate, what happens if that adult son gets divorced? Well, he owns that property and that property will become part of the divorce claim. So people really need to think through all of those potential ramifications. My general rule of thumb is all powers of attorney can be used in order to facilitate a lot of those transactions. Or if you really do want to have somebody who owns part of it, think about whether or not you want to give them 50% of the asset as opposed to each owning it jointly because you don't want to put yourself at increased risk.
1: That's great advice. We've been talking with Laura Tamblin Watts. I want to mention a website that Laura mentioned in the interview for good information. If you're, if you're struggling with trying to come up with a power of attorney, it's www.nicenet.ca. Uh, Laura is from the BC Law Institute. Uh, their website, www.bcli.org. Laura, thanks so much for joining us on dollars and cents. Thanks for having me. This segment's all about the frequently asked questions about consumer proposals, and you are well aware that consumer proposals, that even the term is still a bit foreign. Uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Uh, and the, there's some key things about um, a consumer proposal and going to a licensed insolvency trustee. First of all, they're the only ones that can offer a consumer proposal. And that gives you an opportunity to consolidate your debt legally without resorting to loans, bankruptcy, or credit counseling. Um, and although it's not a new debt solution, lots of folks sort of s- get uh, sit back, go, What? what's a licensed insolvency mm-hmm. trustee today still?
2: Yeah, a proposal, you know, I often say, you know, most things they sound too good to be true and they are too good to be true. This is one of those things that sounds too good to be true. You're telling me I can get all my debt reduced down to what I can afford. You're telling me there's no more interest. You're telling me nobody can sue me. I can include the government debt. All of that is true. All that's part of a consumer proposal. It's not too good to be true. It's just that you don't know about it. So purpose of us doing this show, the purpose I believe and put on this earth is to make people aware um, of consumer proposals as an outstanding way of getting yourself back to owing nobody anything without resorting to a bankruptcy. So in terms of the formal definition of what is a consumer proposal, well, a consumer proposal, it's a legal agreement. It allows a person to consolidate all of their debts into a single amount. It stops all the future interest charges and collection activities. So it's the same protection as a bankruptcy, but it's not a bankruptcy. And the most important part is you repay a portion of the debt. So it's often as little as 20 cents in the dollar. Maybe it's 40 or 50 cents in the dollar. It depends, but it's generally Generally less than the full amount, but that's in full satisfaction of the amounts owing. So if someone were to owe $20,000, for example, um, you know, they're struggling, they're making minimum payments, it's going to take them forever to get out of that situation, they might offer to do a consumer proposal to pay back 30% of that debt, and that might be payments of about $166 over about a three-year period. The balance of the debt would be written off, all they would pay is about the $160, $170 for about three years, and that would deal with the situation.
1: Now, a consumer Consumer proposal is not a new term for bankruptcy. There's still two very different things and only licensed insolvency trustees can facilitate either one of them.
2: That's exactly correct. So they're totally different remedies. They report differently on a credit bureau. Um, The fact is the same protection, which is excellent. If you go into bankruptcy, everybody knows they got to leave you the heck alone. Well, if you do a consumer proposal, everyone's got to leave you the heck alone as well, but you didn't go bankrupt. You just got the same protection by doing a proposal.
1: Now, can anyone file a consumer proposal?
2: Well, there's not a a restriction around citizenship, but you have to owe some money, obviously, or else you wouldn't have the need for it. So uh, to file a consumer proposal in BC, you have to be residing here and you have to owe more than $1,000. Now, generally people don't file proposals for a few thousand dollars. Usually it's at least five to 10, but, you know, owe more than $1,000 and less than $250,000 excluding any mortgages that they might have in their principal residence.
1: Okay. So it doesn't include that. Mm -hmm. Um, And can you do it with somebody or is it always done singularly?
2: If a couple, um, you know, whether they're a married couple or even if it's just two people whose basically finances are substantially the same, that's what it says in the law, it can be done as a joint consumer proposal. So, you know, most often we see husbands and wives do a joint consumer proposal because that's how the the way the household budgets is everything all together. So that makes sense. So it's not a requirement. If one husband or wife were to do a consumer proposal, it doesn't compel the other to do so, uh, but it does give an option to make a joint filing.
1: Now, and I want to repeat this Again, Only a licensed insolvency trustee can facilitate either a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy.
2: Yeah, full stop.
1: And there's reason, you know, there's a lot of good reasons for that.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the government issues, you know, it's around a thousand licenses uh, for trustees in Canada, and that's it. You can imagine there's multiples of that in terms of lawyers, accountants, so on and so forth, but the only person that could ever help you with the proposal or even with the bankruptcy is a licensed insolvency trustee.
1: Okay. Let's talk about um, the stay with the consumer proposal. Can you... uh, I know there's lots of benefits to them, but are Mm -hmm. there some key ones that you always make sure that people know?
2: Yeah, let's go through a couple of them here. Um, You know, One is that it allows you to actually consolidate all of your debt, which is what a lot of people want to do. They want to consolidate their debt, get it down to a lower interest rate, but quite often they approach the bank and the bank says, well, unless you have assets or really high income, we're not going to give you a consolidation loan. Well, what a consumer proposal allows you to do is consolidate regardless of your credit rating. So you're only making one payment and the benefit above and on a consolidation loan is you're not paying everything back and you're paying zero interest. So it's a lot more affordable than a bank consolidation would be. So if consolidation is what you want to do, a proposal can help you achieve that. Um, what it will also do is it will stop the interest and the collection activities. So if you're being taken to court, even if there's a court hearing you know, tomorrow and you sign a proposal today, you're protected. You know, you go to that hearing the next day, you hold up your documents and typically everything grinds uh, to a screeching halt because now you're protected under the terms of a consumer proposal. Um, you know, The last thing I'd want to call it, Elaine, is what a consumer proposal, allows you to do also is protect your assets. So if you go through a bankruptcy, most people keep all of their assets, but there are some situations, you know, if they've got an extra vehicle or some investments or things that if they went through a bankruptcy, something might have to be liquidated. When you do a consumer proposal, by definition, you're keeping all of your assets. So you don't need to worry about losing anything. Nothing's ever taken from you. A proposal is a better deal for your creditors than if they had came and seized your assets from you.
1: Okay. And can I include all my debts in a consumer proposal?
2: Well, pretty well, that's that, yes. So there, there's a few that are excluded and they're the same ones always excluded in the law, you know, money owing for things stolen or fraud, embezzlement and child support. Um, but beyond things like that, you know, consumer and business debts, whether it's credit cards, lines of credit, overdraft, payday loans, instant loans, whatever it is, that can all be included. Um, income tax debt, this is very surprising to a lot of people, uh, but whether it's, you know, your standard income taxes or if you were self-employed, if you have GST or corporate taxes or even payroll remittances, a consumer proposal is the only way in Canada you can make a deal on those types of debts. CRA is not going to negotiate any reductions with you directly. They'll only reduce the debts as part of a consumer proposal. Uh, If you have things like student loans, um, ICBC debts, uh, debts where you've guaranteed for somebody else, um, or even if it's a personal debt that you owe um, a personal creditor and whether they're being difficult or not, you know you owe the money, uh, you can deal with that as part of a consumer proposal.
1: And do you actually... Are you actually able to stop creditors from calling people?
2: Yeah, we do it every day.
1: And how how does that, how do you do that? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, we have this thing called the Federal Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And what it does is it sets out um, basically a code of conduct across the country. And it's federal, obviously takes precedence over anything provincial. And it says, as soon as you've engaged the services of a licensed insolvency trustee through either a bankruptcy or a proposal, there's what's called a stay of proceedings that comes into effect. And that's a mouthful. But what it means is that anything that's happens against you, the music has to stop. Everyone has to put pens down. They can't do anything against you to collect um, or execute on anything to do with your debts. So if you file a consumer proposal, the first thing you do is you sit down, you sign documents with us. The second thing that we do after that is we send those documents out to your creditors, often the same day or within a couple of days. And then as soon as they have those documents, federal law requires them to refrain from any contact with you
1: okay, so let's say i've um, booked an appointment or I've decided to come and see you what happens then is there there's a very specific uh unfolding of events.
2: Yeah, let's talk through the main steps of going through a consumer proposal. So first off, as you hit a nail right on the head there, is you've got to call. you got to reach out or send an inquiry online to Sands & Associates and we'll sit down for a free confidential debt consultation. You don't need to have all of your information up front. It's good for us to know, hey, here's a general idea of the debt. Here's a good budget that I'm living within or at least here's a pay stub. But we'll work with whatever you have for the first conversation and we can usually tell right away if this is going to make sense for you or not. You know, if someone would like like to do a consumer proposal, but they're in a situation where they're struggling to pay rent each month and they've literally got zero dollars available to pay their debts, well, a proposal is not going to be the right option at this time because it's going to be an obligation, you know, already that the person stressed about making that they don't have the proposal. Um, So we want to make sure it works in every situation. But you come in for that first consultation. Um, If you decide to file the consumer proposal, you'll meet with the trustee a couple of times. We've got all the documents together. um, And then we send the proposal out to your creditors. What happens then is they have to vote like any proposal. Proposal in life it can be accepted or rejected. And with a consumer proposal, there's a 45-day period. So from the day that you sign, for the next 45 days, you're automatically protected from your creditors while they consider to whether they're going to accept your proposal or not. If they do accept your proposal, that's 95% of the time they take the first offer, that protection extends for the full term of the proposal. Uh, but the key step there is that we've got to send the proposal out to your creditors and get them to accept it. Once they've accepted it, step three is you performing the proposal. So the proposal was for say $170 a month for three years. You're going to make those payments each month. And then you're also going to come for a couple of financial counseling sessions. And then at the end of all those payments, your proposal will be finished. Your debts are all discharged and you move forward, owing nobody anything.
1: If you want to make that first step, a couple of ways to do that. You can call Sands & Associates toll free at 1-800-661-3030, or you can visit their website at sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents.
0: The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.